Our second reading is from Second Chronicles, chapter 29, and verses 20 to 36. These are God's words. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the princes of the city and went up to the house of Yahweh, and they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of Yahweh. So they killed the bullocks, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. And they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs and sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And they brought near the he goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly. And they laid their hands upon them. And the priests killed them, and they made a sin offering with their blood upon the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the ascension offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he set the Levites in the house of Yahweh with cymbals, with lyres, with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was of Yahweh by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the horns. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the ascension offering upon the altar. And when the ascension offering began, the song of Yahweh began also, and the horns, together with the instruments of David, king of Israel. And all the assembly prostrated, and the singers sang, and the horn players sounded. All this continued until the ascension offering was finished. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed and prostrated. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praises unto Yahweh with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed and prostrated. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now ye have consecrated yourselves unto Yahweh. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of Yahweh. And the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many were of a willing heart brought ascension offerings. And the number of the ascension offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bullocks, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were for an ascension offering to Yahweh. And the consecrated things were 600 oxen and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few, so they could not flay all the ascension offerings. Wherefore their brothers, the Levites, did help them till the work was ended and until the priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests." And also the ascension offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every ascension offering. So the service of the house of Yahweh was set in order. And Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people because of that which God had prepared for the people. For the thing was done suddenly. These are God's words. Please be seated. We are getting toward the end of our series on how we should worship. In the last sermon, we saw the great importance of the clothes that we wear in worship. These matter a great deal because our clothing communicates something. In worship especially, we are communicating with our very creator, the king of the universe, the savior of our souls. What are we saying to him in what we wear? But clothing is not the only thing that communicates Obviously, we communicate with what we say, but before we look at that, which I want to do next time, we also communicate with what we do. Our bodies themselves are made to express meaning. That is why it is called body language. There is something quite important in our passage today 
with regards to body language that you may have noticed if you have your own Bible and you are comparing what we read today, what I read today, with what your Bible says. If you did that, you would notice that there is one key difference. Whereas in the version that I read today, we repeatedly see people bowing and prostrating. In most Bible translations, you'll read about them bowing and worshiping. What I want you to see, what I want to draw your attention to here, is that in both Hebrew and in Greek, so both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the term that we typically translate worship in English literally means to prostrate oneself. To bow down to the ground. This is more than just kneeling. If you think about how Muslims pray, for instance, they go down on their knees and then they go down on their faces with their hands on the ground. This is prostration. That is the posture that the early church used in worship. It is the same posture that you find universally in Scripture when people worship before God. It is considered so fundamental to coming before God that it is actually translated as worship. When you see people worshiping in scripture, they are on their knees with their face to the ground. This is not how we use the term today, is it? When we read worship, that is not what we think of. In fact, I would say that the term worship has become a kind of Christianese. You remember Christianese, the the language of Christians, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, it's kind of jargon. It is not technically, worship is not technically a biblical word at all. Because it isn't really translating the Greek or the Hebrew terms. And so it isn't a word that God put into Scripture. If you want to translate Scripture accurately, worship to us does not mean prostrating. It means something quite different. And because it is Christianese, it can actually mean a lot of different things. Different people interpret the word worship in different ways. It's a term that we can kind of fill with our own meaning and... We bring our own ideas about what worship is or should be, and we place those into the word worship when we read about people worshiping in the scripture. Now, obviously, everything that we tend to think about worship definitely has something to do with coming before God, but what exactly that is and what it looks like is a pretty fuzzy notion these days. But if you want to talk about what people are doing in the scripture when they come before God, the correct term is prostrating. Now, why is this? I don't think it's very hard to understand. Just as clothing communicates, so do our bodies. You've obviously heard of body language. You probably know that the majority of our communication, so they say, takes place non-verbally. So imagine if I came to you after the service and I kneeled down in front of you and bowed my face to the floor and asked you for something. How would you feel about that? You'd probably feel pretty awkward, And you would feel awkward because you know instinctively, intuitively, that posture means something, even though in our culture we tend to try to deny it. To be higher is to have authority, to be superior in some way. So why do you think that men are taller than women? Well, it would be symbolically backwards for a man to be shorter than his wife. Now, that does happen. My my, um, brother-in-law is actually shorter than his wife. But it is very rare Because God has set the physical world up in such a way as to express spiritual realities. Are you shorter than Sinead? (laughs) All right, that's two people I know. That's quite unusual. And so by the same token, 
If anyone deliberately makes themselves lower than someone else, they are expressing something about their relationship to that person, how they perceive that person in relationship to them. Both Tolkien and Peter Jackson understood this on a very deep level. Think about the coronation scene in The Return of the King, the movie. Aragorn steps down from his throne. He's all regal. He's got his crown on. And there are the hobbits in front of him. And they all bow to him. Not, a, not on the, to the ground, but they bow from the waist. And he says, my friends, you bow to no one. And then he kneels before them. And as he kneels, everyone must follow suit. The whole kingdom gathered there for his coronation kneel with him. Because, of course, no one can stay standing when the king kneels unless he is higher than the king. And so there are these tiny, short little hobbits standing there in front of the king, and he and his entire people are making themselves lower than they are. It's a real onion-slicing scene, if you know what I mean, because this is powerful symbolism. In the same way, speaking of the church, Scripture says, kings shall be thy nursing fathers and thy, their queens they, uh, thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces to the earth and lick the dirt of thy feet, and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, and that they that wait for me shall not be put to shame. It's Isaiah 49. Even kings are subject to the authority of Christ, which is represented in his church. And because Christ's authority is infinitely greater than any man, it is fitting that when we bow before him, when even kings bow before him, we should bow as low as we can get. This is the consistent pattern of scripture from the lowliest peasant to the highest king. We see it with Hezekiah in our passage. We also see it in Revelation with people who are even higher than Hezekiah, people who have been exalted in heaven, people who are elders in heaven, perfected men, and the greatest angels. Look at Revelation chapter 5. The four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and prostrated or worshipped. So what am I suggesting? Not that the only posture that we should have in worship is prostration. God does not want us on our faces continually, for he delights to lift us up. Remember, he raised us up with him and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This sitting is important as well. Have you thought about the movement of our worship? We start on our feet as we are called into God's presence. We are, as it were, out in the world, walking about. We hear the call, and we must come in. And so we are on our feet. But then when we come in, we realize our standing. I use the word advisedly. We realize our standing before God, and we fall to our knees in confession to implore that he make us fit for his presence. Now, I would like us to think about how we kneel. Our practice at Redwood is not very consistent with how we see people kneeling in Scripture. In our worship, we do not currently prostrate ourselves as they did. I think in general, Western people are very stiff-necked, they are proud, and they would feel foolish or embarrassed or even humiliated to prostrate like that. But... Isn't that kind of the point of the posture? I do think that we are much too worried about what others think or how we ourselves feel and not nearly worried enough about what God thinks 
and what our real place is before him. I also think that it may be much better if I joined you in prostrating myself when we confess, if I began prostrated for a moment, then kneeled up so that I could read and speak, because while it is legitimate to be excused from prostrating because you have some function to perform in leading worship, which we see in our passage with the Levites, for instance, when they're singing, we should be naturally suspicious of leaders who excuse themselves from showing the humility that they expect of others. And in the case of our passage, and in the case of Revelation 5 also, we see the leaders of worship are leading the people in prostrating themselves. Now, be that as it may, we do not stay on our knees or our faces before God. After we confess our sin, he lifts our heads. He bids us to rise up. And so we sing, naturally, and we hear his word. Standing is a position of action. But we don't remain standing either, do we? Eventually we do sit. Our movement goes from kneeling to standing to sitting. Why do we sit? It is practical, to be sure. It would be very uncomfortable to stand through an entire sermon. But it is not just that. Why are we seated in the heavenlies? Ephesians tells us he set us with Christ. It is because Christ sits at the right hand of God. To be seated is to be enthroned. This is why teachers in the ancient world sat down to teach. It is a kingly position, a position of judging. That doesn't mean that it's wrong to stand and teach like I am right now. There are reasons to do that as well, since then you're higher than the people. But sitting is kingly. Now, what about prostrating at other times? We prostrate for confession, or we kneel for confession. I think we should prostrate. But what about for prayer in general? We have the pastoral prayer after the sermon, for instance. Should we kneel for that? Actually, Scripture shows us a different posture for general prayer. It isn't wrong to be on our knees for that, although I I don't think it's strictly necessary. But when praying, we are given specific instructions for those who are actually speaking, those who are actually doing the prayers, For instance, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I desire, therefore, that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing. It was normal in the early church for multiple men to pray in church, and when they prayed, they were to raise their hands. Why? Again, this isn't actually that hard to understand. It's the same reason that a man is ordained by the laying on of hands. It's the same reason that when you offered an animal, as we saw in our passage today, you would lay your hands on it, you would lean yourself upon it. The hands are like a conduit for you and your intentions. You lift your hands to God in order to connect yourself to him, as if you were sending your prayer up, raising yourself up through your hands. David says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. So incense rises up. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So here it parallels the the prayer being counted as incense and the lifting up of his hands in Psalm 141. And do you remember the strange story in Exodus 17 where Moses has to keep his hands up in order to uh, ensure that the Israelite army will keep winning? This is Exodus 17, 10 to 12. Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek 
And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. How peculiar, right? Well, not peculiar enough that God felt like he needed to explain it. Moses goes up the hill. He goes upward toward heaven. And then he lifts his hands up toward heaven. He is the representative of his people. God is illustrating physically. He is expressing, symbolizing the complete dependence of Israel upon his heavenly power being mediated through Moses. You see a similar idea with priestly blessings. Leviticus 9, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Jesus does a similar thing in Luke 24, raising his hands to bless his disciples. But Leviticus is helpful specifically here because it says that Aaron lifts his hands toward the people. He is not raising his hands to God, in, his, in this case, his palms up. He is raising them toward the people, palms out. There is a difference between these two postures that communicates who is receiving what. When I pray on behalf of the congregation, you may have noticed my palms are towards God. When I bless the congregation as I send you out, when I give you the benediction, my palms are towards you. It is a minor detail, but hands are detailed, subtle things. And so subtle details do communicate. So the men should pray lifting their hands on behalf of the congregation. It does not say the other men should lift their hands, though I think that it is appropriate for them to do so, to show that it is a corporate prayer. It does not say that the women should lift their hands. And in fact, 1 Timothy 2 contrasts the men and the women. The men are to lift holy hands, and all the men may. I think it makes most sense if the man praying does. But the women likewise, meaning that this corresponds to what the men are doing, the women are to wear holy hands clothes. I won't go into that for the sake of time. Uh, I cut those notes from the sermon because we still need to look at singing and music, but you can find them on Facebook if you are interested. So let's talk about another kind of body language. We've looked at posture, but what about our voices themselves? I don't mean the words we speak. I mean how we use our voices. This is just as important as the position of our bodies. Tone, volume, that kind of thing. They they communicate. The tone of my voice, the strength of my voice right now is telling you a great deal about how to interpret what I am saying. If I were mumbling or speaking in a monotone, you would come to believe that what I was saying was boring and unimportant and that I myself thought that it was boring and unimportant. The fact that I am speaking with some animation tells you that I myself believe what I am saying to be both interesting and important because it is. Or think about it from the other end. Imagine you're listening to someone who is speaking in another language that you don't speak. Now, can you tell anything about what they are saying if you don't understand the words? Yeah, of course you can. My mother, who is a typically tiny, fearsome South African woman, takes advantage of this all the time with her dogs. If they misbehave, a dog is in the kitchen or a dog is on the couch, she will raise herself up to her full five feet on two or three inches. That's posture. And she will lower her voice 
and say in a fearsome tone, Allah makezi maningi chiza. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's something she made up. It's, she calls it fake Russian. <laughs> and yet it means everything that the dogs need to know. They cower before these meaningless phrases. Her tone and her posture communicate what is necessary. She is above them. She is in command of them. And she is displeased. Even dogs understand symbolism. She makes her voice sound deep because the pitch of sound means something. She makes it sound strong because the force and volume and timbre of a sound means something. Think about this. Why is thunder scary? God didn't have to design us to find thunder scary and ominous and threatening, but he did design us that way. For the same reason that he uses thunder as his own voice when he comes down on Mount Sinai. It came to pass, this is Exodus 19, on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the thunder of a horn exceeding loud and all the people that were in the camp trembled. And when the thunder of the horn waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by thunder. Now stop and imagine what that would have been like. Think about the last time that you heard a thunderstorm right overhead. I don't mean like far off in the distance, kind of rumbling. That's like, oh, that's a cool... Yeah, there's a thunderstorm out there. That's awesome. Right overhead. So the rumble shook the ground and vibrated in your chest. And then when the thunderclap came, it would actually make the roof jump and the windows would rattle. Hold that in your mind. And now imagine that when the thunderclap came, it was speaking words that you could understand. Think about how utterly terrifying that would be. That is why the Hebrews quaked and trembled with fear and begged God to let Moses speak to them instead. Why the horn also? This is not a trumpet as the ASV would have it. Trumpets weren't invented back then. It was a, a deep horn. Imagine something like a fog horn. If any of you have played Bioshock Infinite, think of that moment when you ring the bells at the beginning of the game in the lighthouse. And from the sky, this great reverberating tone issues back the tune to you. When I first played that, I instinctively hit the crouch key and I moved to take cover. I was like, what is happening? Am I in danger? Do I need to run away? Our own voices are connected to this idea as well. If you have not heard Peter and the Wolf by Prokofiev, do yourself a favor and listen to it this afternoon. It is a wonderful example of how different sounds mean different things as the different instruments of the orchestra represent different characters in the story. The grandfather is a grumpy old bassoon. Doo -doo -doo -doo. When we sing in worship, men are the bassoons and, and the trombones and the trumpets, and women are the clarinets and the flutes and the piccolos. Or to put it in the language of our passage today, men are the horns and women are the harps. Our voices sound different because we are made for different things. Men's voices have more force, more strength. Women's voices have more gentleness, more beauty. In a book, you might heard that a father thundered at his children, but it would be poor writing if you read that a mother did so. I suspect that Mrs. Trunchbull thunders in Matilda, but the whole point of that is that she is more manly than a man. Women do not typically thunder. On a bad day, women may twitter, but on a good day, their voices soar. No one who has listened to the discant in Christmas carols like Hark the Herald or the First Noel can deny that women's voices soar. 
They raise the melody of the song right up to heaven. Men's voices do not soar, but they do act like the bedrock supporting the melody. And all of this means something, just as much as men being taller than women means something. Men and women are both symbols of God, but what we symbolize is different. How should we think about this when it comes to worship specifically? Hopefully it goes without saying that singing is integral to worship. We have an entire songbook contained within Scripture itself with 150 songs written by God himself. In both the Old and the New Testaments, song is integral to worship. And we also see that this song was led by those who were gifted in music. For example, in First Chronicles 16, we read that David appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the Ark of Yahweh and to celebrate and to thank and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, Asaph, the chief, and second to him, Zechariah. And then it lists a bunch of people with lyres and harps, cymbals sounding aloud, the priests with horns continually before the Ark of God. And then on that day did David first ordain to give thanks unto Yahweh by the hand of Asaph, who is the music leader, and his brothers. And this tells us that it is entirely fitting for the music in our worship to be produced. Just as the best artisans were chosen to craft the priestly garments, the best craftsmen were chosen to build the temple, so the best singers and musicians were chosen to create the music. Moreover, David and the captains of the host set apart for the service certain of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Yaduthan, who should prophesy with harps, with lyres, and with cymbals. And the number of them with their brothers that were instructed in singing unto Yahweh, even all that were skillful, was 288. So under the old covenant, there was a large choir singing to God in worship, and they used instruments. It was an accompanied choir. Incidentally, notice the language of prophesying in that passage. This is, I think, important to understanding what it means that women can only pray or prophesy with their heads covered, but I won't get sidetracked on that today. Instead, let me ask you a question. Why does God make singing and instruments integral to worship? It might sound like kind of a dumb question because we know the answer intuitively. It doesn't seem like it needs to be spelled out. But actually, I think it is helpful to articulate this clearly, to really think it through. Here's how I would put it, and it's very simple, but it's a deep truth that is worth dwelling on. Singing is glorified speech, and accompanied singing, singing of instruments, is glorified singing. Instruments double glorify, and singing single glorifies, as it were. So in other words, singing beautifies our speech and brings it to its highest form. Instruments then beautify and extend the capabilities of our singing itself, exalting it even higher and emphasizing the message itself. Needless to say, I use terms like higher and exalting with much care, observing how they are the natural terms to reach for, to describe what is happening. The speech is becoming more like God. It is moving closer to God in some way by being sung and then doubly so again by being accompanied with instruments. It is, paradoxically, soaring higher while growing weightier, being given more of its meaning, assuming that the instrument matches it, of course. So if you were to imagine that I sang the call to worship, um, that would be entirely appropriate, I think, if I could find a good tune. The liturgy has been sung or chanted in 
Many, maybe even most churches throughout the majority of Christian history, I'm not suggesting that we should do this, but I'm just saying, imagine that I did. Suppose that I sang what we have now, uh, what, we, what we read, that we've come to the city of the living God, we're surrounded by hosts of angels, the spirits, the righteous made perfect, Jesus and God himself are here with us. If I sang that, what sort of instrument would reinforce that message? It would not be a, a tinkly kind of instrument, would it? Like, we have a guitar and a piano, those, those are good, we use them because we have them, but ideally, if you were to really use an instrument that would give weight to that message, that would fill out that message, it'd be something like a, a trumpet. The sound of it being delivered, as well as the words being used in the tone of my own voice, would mean something. A trumpet has a triumphant calling sound. Trumpet simultaneously says, pay attention, and whoa, this is awesome. But then if we sang the confession, a trumpet would be completely the wrong instrument to accompany us. We should rather use something like a cello or an oboe, maybe, something that would fill up and bring out the mourning over sin. Uh, You get the idea, right? I don't intend to suggest our entire worship should be set to an orchestra, but if we had the means to do that, would it be inappropriate? I think it would only be inappropriate if it became about the performance instead of about the worship. It would not be inappropriate if the music really did increase the clarity and the weight of what was being communicated in the worship itself. And we see that from the model of the Old Testament temple worship. Now, at Redwood, obviously, we don't set everything to music. There is a balance to be struck between making the service accessible and making the service glorious. Jared and I have actually talked together about chanting, for instance, which was very standard, as I say, in Christian liturgies. But chanting is very difficult to learn and to do well and would create an enormous barrier of entry for new worshippers, even if we all manage to do it. And it's not just the difficulty of learning it. There's also the difficulty of adjusting to it. Wisdom consists not in knowing some kind of abstract ideal for how to act, not in thinking, well, how do they, how do, they do it in heaven? Do they chant everything? If they chant everything, then we should chant everything down here. It consists in knowing the best way to act in the actual circumstances where God has placed you. In New Zealand culture, chanting would be extremely weird and make people very uncomfortable. Now, worshipping the true God certainly should look different to what we are used to seeing in secular culture. It certainly should make unbelievers uncomfortable. But it does not make sense to use that as a justification for being as different and as discomforting as possible. In the West, it is now normal to speak the majority of the service, and we see examples of people speaking in worship all the time in Scripture, so there is nothing wrong with that. And we gather up our glorified speech into hymns, and we place these at the beginning or the end of each section of liturgy. When we do that, we use the instruments that we have to make the music as glorious as we can. Sometimes we don't have instruments at all because Jared has duties in life that prevent him from preparing anything. Sometimes we just have the guitar, sometimes we just have the piano, and we use these instruments not because they are always the perfect accompaniment to bring out the meaning of the hymns that we're singing, but because they are what we have. The general pattern of our music in worship is to strike a balance between accessibility and beauty, familiarity and majesty, and this, I believe, is a wise way of doing things. In a very different culture, it might not be a wise way of doing things. But this is our culture, so we do it as best we can. I should acknowledge that this could be an objection to what we're doing. 
our best is often very modest. It's not that glorious, right? Sometimes we sing really well, and sometimes just like, nah, that wasn't the best thing we've ever done. We are seeking to live out the pattern of glorifying, of glorifying our speech with music, but our current glory is much less than what we would aspire to one day be capable of. So how should we think about that? Well, the Lord does not despise the day of small things, as if he would turn up his nose to worship that was insufficiently glorious for him. He knows our weakness. Remember how Jesus sat down over against the treasury and he beheld how the multitude cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a poor widow and she cast in two copper coins, which make one penny. And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, this poor widow cast in more than all they that are casting into the treasury. For they all did cast in of their superfluity, that is, their abundance, what they have in extra. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. And my own approach to worship that I hope I model to you is to cast in all my living, everything that I can give without compromising my duties to my household, which I believe would disqualify me, I will give. Paul speaks of how this is seemly and fitting for men who are charged with overseeing the flock. He tells Timothy, be thou sober in all things, suffer hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill thy ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. This is how we should worship. We should pour ourselves out like drink offerings to God, regardless of how great or how how humble our efforts turn out to be. Now, there are some people who will argue very strenuously that we ought not to use instruments while we do this. I'm sure this would be very convenient for Jared, as he would have greatly less preparation to do. I've listened to whole sermons on this topic by respectable men, men who love the Lord, men whose names you'd probably recognize, men who have um, upheld a lot of the church's traditional views in in the face of a very hostile culture. They believe that in regulating our worship, and according to the pattern of Scripture, we must not go beyond what God has authorized in any respect. We agree with them on that point. And they say that because of this, we must never use instruments because God has not authorized instruments in New Covenant worship. I want to deal with this briefly because it is an objection that you may hear, and it's an objection worth hearing. These men are well-intentioned, and I respect their fear of worshiping incorrectly. But their zeal in this case is not according to knowledge. We've already seen how New Testament worship fulfills temple worship and follows the pattern of temple worship as well as synagogue worship. Temple worship unquestionably used instruments as commanded by God himself for the same reason that he commanded the ostentatious fancy garments for the priests, for glory and for beauty. He does not need to spell this out. We all intuitively, instinctively understand that this is what music is for. Music is elevates the message. This is why when we get a glimpse of worship in heaven under the new covenant, we read twice. The worshippers have harps. The four living creatures, the four and twenty elders, fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp. That's Revelation 5.8. And then Revelation 15. 
I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that came off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing by the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So the worship leaders have harps, and the worshippers themselves have harps. This makes sense because we have learned that one of the things that makes New Covenant worship better is that we all have access directly to God, and we can all participate in worship and communion with God directly. We don't need an authorized priestly tribe to offer the sacrifice for us, whether it is a sacrifice of animals being offered by the priests with knives or a sacrifice of song being offered by the priests in the choir. We all are priests of God through Jesus, and we can all bring our offerings directly to his throne. And I suppose in heaven things are different and everyone can play the harp. Here on earth things are not so simple. But we can certainly say that instruments in new covenant worship are clearly depicted and that anyone gifted in playing those instruments is permitted to do so. After all, is our worship more or less glorious than old covenant worship? Well, if it is less glorious, let us go back to the old covenant God forbid. But if it is more glorious, why would we remove the glory? Why should we communicate that it is a less glorious form of worship by restricting ourselves to singing without any instruments to beautify and elevate our words? Look at the instruments that we have today compared to what they had in ancient Israel. Look at the musical styles and capabilities that we have. The octave scale, we think we take that for granted. That's revolutionary in music. It is an extraordinary thing. The piano, the flute, we take that piano for granted. Every church has a piano. These are intricate technological marvels that were not only beyond imagining back then, but beyond the ability to make. It wouldn't have been been possible to make pianos and flutes and maybe even guitars back then. Maybe guitars were possible. These are products of Christian culture of the gospel working itself out through music theory and science and technology, even maths. Think of Handel's Messiah, a masterpiece of post-Reformation culture. Okay, he was a Lutheran, no one's perfect. But think about this. This is a masterpiece of the ages dedicated to glorying, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Suppose we had a church where our people could write music like that and an orchestra and a choir who could play music like that, are we supposed to think that it would be impermissible in our worship? That our actual worship before the throne of God should be less glorious than a good concert? It doesn't make any sense. So arguing that we shouldn't use instruments is one ditch, but there is another ditch on the other side which is actually much more common today, and this is this kind of strange paradox in most churches between their view of liturgy and their view of worship, uh, their view of the, the, what they call worship leaders, music, their view of music and their view of liturgy is a, a strange tension. Here's what I mean. Most churches will say that there is something stifling or inauthentic about call and response liturgy like we use. Liturgy should be more spontaneous, should come from the heart, and especially prayers. If you have to write it down and practice it, then it's like a dead prayer or a dead liturgy. The way that you can tell the Spirit is working is that people are you know, making stuff up on the spot. I dare say that there are plenty of preachers who don't even prepare their sermons either because they think it is more spiritual to speak off the cuff as the Spirit moves them in the moment. 
But then, when it comes to music, I've noticed that they suddenly reverse course completely. They become very concerned about the quality of it, and they seem to be convinced that quality is only truly possible through careful preparation and practice. So which is it? Is spontaneity really more spiritual or more real? Or does preparation actually count for something if you want to do it well? I think the answer is obvious. It is impossible to produce something as beautiful and worthy of God spontaneously in the moment compared to spending time in careful preparation, refining your offering over the course of days or weeks or even months in the case of our liturgy until it is the absolute best that we are able to bring before God. I think it's very clear with respect to liturgy in general, when you look again at Revelation, Revelation is given to us partly as a model of what is happening in heaven when people worship. The people worshiping in Revelation all speak at various times, and it is clear that they have learned what to say. I don't know how learning works in heaven, but here on earth, it requires us to write things down and memorize them. You all have memorized much of our liturgy simply by repeating it often. When I say, lift up your hearts, you know what to say. You don't have to look at the sheet anymore. There is nothing wrong with having it written down in front of you, of course, just like there's nothing wrong with having written music in front of you so that you don't mess that up. But as you practice it, you do tend to learn it. The way we see worship conducted in Revelation is also important because it emphasizes specifically the whole congregation is involved. Here at Redwood, we have an antiphonal liturgy. Antiphonal liturgy means a, a call and response liturgy. We have this not because it's traditional, but because Revelation depicts this as the pattern of heavenly worship. And the reason for that pattern is obvious. The people are worshiping, not the man up front. The man up front is leading the worship. He is not performing the worship. I'm afraid that modern Christians are very confused on this point. In many cases, they understand it well enough in the case of hymns. The whole congregation sings to God, not just the man up front, although I'm afraid in some congregations even that is not the case. The band performs and the congregation watch. But generally, I think that more conservative churches would all agree the people ought to sing. And yet for some reason, when it comes to the rest of worship, we've gotten this strange idea that this principle no longer applies. Worship in most churches is observed passively. The only role of the congregation seems to be to assent to what is happening at key moments or endorse what's been said by saying amen. But this idea is actually completely alien to Scripture. In fact, you might say Scripture illustrates it the other way around. Look at Revelation 5 again. I'll read a bit more of it. The four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and did purchase unto God with thy blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and madest to be unto our God a kingdom and priests. And they reign upon the earth. And I saw... And I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a great voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb that hath been slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things that are in them, heard I saying, Unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the dominion for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Notice the order of events here. First, the elders and the angelic throne guardians who are leading the worship sing. Then the rest of the angelic army joins in speaking a fitting response to that song. They may be singing, but it says that they're speaking. and The words are not always that distinct in Greek and Hebrew. Then the whole of creation... Everything in heaven, on earth, and under the earth join in speaking a further response. I'm not sure how we should understand exactly what is happening here, but the key point is that the pattern goes from the worship leaders singing to a larger group speaking to the entire congregation speaking, and then finally, the worship leaders alone assent and endorse by saying, Amen. And notice again, when they do so, they fall down and worship. The Greek, of course, is literally they fell down and prostrated. They fell down and went to their knees. Now, I don't think that what we see here is meant to be slavishly followed as the only possible script for worship. I'm not saying, for instance, that only the leaders can sing. We've seen elsewhere that the congregation sings too. But I want to understand what patterns, what principles this worship follows. And a key principle is how involved in the worship the congregation is. Regardless of whether they are singing or speaking, they have a lot to say because it is they who are worshiping. Notice also what is sung here. It is a new song. This is taken straight from Psalm 96. Oh, sing unto Yahweh a new song. Sing unto Yahweh all the earth. Now there are some, and often these are the same people who are against instruments, who will say that we are only allowed to sing psalms in worship. It is certainly good to sing psalms in worship and even to favor the psalms. Twice the New Testament commands us to have a special focus on the psalms. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. That's Colossians 3. And again, Ephesians 5, be not drunken with wine wherein is riot, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So the way in which we are filled with the Spirit is by being filled with his words. And his words are found in what the Jews refer to as psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which are actually all different kinds of psalms. It is uh, unquestionably referring to the word of God specifically here, um, not to other hymns or, or worship songs, the, the Jews did refer to different types of psalms using that threefold category. And one reason that God gave us psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in Scripture was because it is much easier to learn his word when it is set to music. And it is much easier to be filled with his word when it is set to music. Music glorifies and expands and resonates with the message, but it also solidifies it. Music provides extra structure for your mind to cling to, extra ways for the words to stick in your head. But are we to sing only psalms? These passages certainly don't say that. It says we should sing psalms. It doesn't say only sing psalms. And the question 
almost doesn't make sense when you understand the purpose of music. Are we to speak to God and worship using our own words? Of course, right? We, he hasn't given us a script to follow, so we have to use our own words. We're allowed to pray in our own words, for instance. Obviously, we follow the pattern of Scripture in learning how to pray, but we use our own words as well as the words of Scripture. But that being the case, why would we not be allowed to beautify and glorify our prayer in our own words with music? That is what is modeled for us in the Psalms, isn't it? That's why, that is what many hymns are, in fact, is glorified prayers. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. That is a prayer. In the same way, we are allowed to praise God in our own words. And the Psalms model this again for us, praising God musically. So why wouldn't we sing hymns like praise to the Lord the Almighty? Singing does not make words more sacred. It makes them more beautiful. Music does not make the words so holy that only God's words can be safely uttered in song. It makes the words weightier and more resonant and more memorable. Perhaps the most important thing to note, though, is where I started. Psalm 96 actually commands us to sing a new song to the Lord. And Revelation depicts the saints doing just that. So let me ask you, how are we to obey this command if we do not write new songs and then sing them in worship? Obviously, this doesn't mean that we must sing a new song every time we worship. The saints in Revelation sing a new song in response to something that God has done. It is fitting to write new songs in response to new acts of God in our lives, if we have the gifting. It's fitting for the church also to sing these songs in worship. Think of Amazing Grace. This is one of Western Church's most beloved hymns. Was that not written in response to an act of God in John Newton's life? Certainly it was. God intervened to save him from a life as a slaver, and make him a slave to Christ. And so it is our privilege and delight to bring these songs before our God in worship as fragrant offerings, as well as the psalms that he has given us. We've covered a lot of ground. I hope you can see that it's all connected and that it was ground that was best to cover all in one go. Let me try to sum up for you. Firstly, The word that we translate as worship in scripture really means to prostrate or bow down. And this is an essential posture toward God that I would like us to more closely imitate in worship. But it is also only the initial posture of worship. We move from prostration to standing to sitting with God himself, which of course reflects the ultimate purpose of worship as mutual participation, communion with God around a shared meal. Secondly, A second important posture that I believe we are doing well already is of the men who pray, lifting their hands to God, representing lifting the prayers of the congregation into heaven. When we send our prayers to God, those praying impart the prayers through upturned palms, and when we impart blessings to the congregation from God, it is through palms turned toward the people. Finally, perhaps the largest topic, singing matters It is through music that our speech to God is glorified, beautified, elevated, emphasized, made weightier and more solid. We should therefore earnestly sing to the best of our abilities and desire to grow a culture of musical excellence at Redwood as God gives us the ability. 
I'm already personally very thankful that we have um, people like Jared, who God has provided for us, who not only have musical skill, but also understand the import of music and the need to be reforming the sound that we make, working toward greater glory and beauty. And not just Jared, of course, we're a surprisingly musical congregation. This is a great blessing from God that we, are, we certainly intend to keep cultivating.